welcome to the Social World Podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Niven and uh, it's nice to have you with me. Now today I'm going to be talking with Anne-Marie Christian, uh, who's an enormously experienced social worker. She's now a consultant and she's a public speaker, she's an author. And so it's a good person to have on our program because we're going to talk a little bit about operational matters today, about frontline stuff and, and education eventually and safeguarding in education because that's such a, a huge area of work and area of responsibility for all those that actually are involved in education. So welcome, Anne-Marie, to the programme. Thank you. Hi, welcome. Welcome to you and everybody listening to this. Um, thank you for having me. No, you're very welcome. Now, um, just tell us a little bit about your own history, uh, how you started in social work and what you've been involved with, and then we'll, we'll drift nicely into the whole issue of education safeguarding. Okay, well, um, I qualified in 1996 and I did a degree back then as a pilot, um, worked really well. I did two placements in children and families and um, I then, one was a residential unit for young adolescent girls who'd been abused and the other one was um, statutory under eight team actually, children and families, both in Greater London, which I really enjoyed. Um, And then I kind of did my I did a generic post, actually. My first, I, you know, back then I, I did two um, agency roles as locums, um, newly qualified, which you would never do now, which I agree with. Um, and, and then I kind of, <laughs> I remember my, my first day, I qualified in July and by the, the second week I was, you know, working. I won't name the borough, but I was in court my second day as a newly qualified. And that was definitely a, a learning curve. But there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, better, we're better protected now. But anyway, so... Um, then I kind of eventually, after say three months of being um, agency, then I then got a permanent role, and it was actually a old kind of. When I say old, it was old school. It was more kind of a neighbourhood social work, so it was generic. Mm. So I had a team. Uh, I had a caseload of all disabilities, child protection, child in need, looked after, adop- even adoption. I had even um, a few kind of HIV kind of cases as well. So that was really interesting. Like a sort of um, smorgasbord of social work. Yeah, it was lovely. Uh, before people kind of specialised in different teams then, mm. you know. Mm. Um, that was a very good experience. I loved that. And then I went for a an interesting new kind of initiative because I worked for a borough where they were kind of linked to national government where they had lots of new projects and pilot projects. So I went for a project, a pilot project based in a school in secondary school in inner London and we called it the inclusion project and I started that role in October 99 and I wasn't sure about it to be honest and then um, I remember being kind of feeling a bit isolated from my colleagues but I was still part of a statutory team Um, we called it the adolescent resource team back then and they had a social worker in the PRU and I was in the school and they had different kind of outreach ones and it worked really well and I was in a team based in the school with a education welfare officer, some learning mentors. Mm. And also we went on to do some, um, back then connections advisors were just also being piloted, which we did at this school too. So it was an amazing role. And I did that for five years. Um, who, who are you actually working with and what were the kind of issues that you were finding? Okay. So it's interesting. I was, so I was still statutory working for children's social care, uh, but a specialist team. And um, I was in the secondary school. It was uh, co-ed, um, comprehensive, um, you know, in, in, in a bar with lots of wealth, but also poverty. 
you know, like like all, shall I say, mm-hmm. you know, like every other. Yeah. And um, we were working with a very multicultural school, lots of different languages. So I remember feeling like a, I'll never forget this, I felt like a policewoman on the crime scene because being child protection social worker, um, I felt that there was lots of vulnerable children in this school <clears throat> who had not yet trusted or... So some of them were suffering, you can clearly see, that were in abusive kind of situations, you know, whether it was at home or in, in there with their peers. And, and some of them were very delicate. Some of them um, had trauma, but they were still functioning quite well, but quite delicate and quite sensitive. And, you know, with those, within the first term, we actually reduced exclusion rate by a third. And we actually hit the press, actually. I remember we were in the TES, the Times Education Supplement, and also in community care because the project was going down really well. That's a pretty working. significant number. Yeah, we were, you know, working with the vulnerable students, the students who were more, had a lot going on but couldn't relate to teachers. So we were all kind of, back then in my 20s, I'd say, it was much more kind of a younger, nurturing, they drop into our projects, we'd have a chat, they'll, they'll offload, we'll correct their behaviours if they were moaning about teachers or we'll bring them back to lesson. So some of it was kind of direct work. And then I created um, a year nine um group that I did with some year nine girls who were low self-esteem um, and then I every week I used to kind of have a format where I'd meet all the head of years they talk about their vulnerable students and it was like early help but you know back then before mm. that cast came out it's quite yeah. interesting yeah. so the, the good thing about this project David was um, I actually had access to the, the social care data in the school so I could log on and, and then they created my own kind of team where they so it was non-statutory obviously because I was on my own as an early help but I'd open up cases that I was working with in the school and it's a similar format where I'd get permission from parents to then work with their child whether it's group work whether it's even family work working with the family going home visits they come to meet me you know some of it was just teenage turmoil um you know not understanding your child and then yeah that kind of went on to um me then saw a role in another borough of managing a service like that, which I went for and mm. I got. Okay. And then I was managing social workers in schools, which was another kind of, you know, again, quite new. That was early, early noughties, should I say, 2003, where um, I kind of, again, then, um, and I just finished my, my practice teaching award because I had a student in the school that I was also a social work student that was working with me. So I left that role to go straight into this other role for the local authority. Okay. And I was, I was like a sort of safeguarding advisor, but also t- trainer to schools and, um, you know, signposting them around safeguarding. Well, let's develop that a little bit, because, I mean, you know, the, the, the same themes are around today. It's just, you know, we've got different information, different knowledge, and we've experienced all sorts of different things. And we've still got challenges that come out of every corner by the sound of it. But, I mean, so you developed it now and you you moved on then, right? And you actually you had your own team. But you must have been noticing changes in how the schools were responding to safeguarding. Yeah, so yes and no, I suppose. I suppose the new role I went for, David, um, is interesting. The guy who um, employed me, he created the job and he was very much an inclusive guy. He really was kind of wanted, he could see that there was a there was a gap. There was, um, there was almost um, no communication between social care and education. And, and this role that I was in, I remember him at the interview telling me, it was to bridge the gap between children's social care and education. And that's what the role was. And that's still the case now. I could, I could, I, you know, I definitely agree with that. 
there's still an issue between how social workers kind of appreciate and um, understand the systems in education, schools, um, but also for schools to then also still understand our processes in social care. So I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a converted social worker, but also very much into an understanding our colleagues in education with their frustrations, but also their systems <laughs> and, and their acronyms as well. So, you know, I remember being in the new role um, and it working very, very well, being very successful. And, and, and I remember um, in supervision once, um, my manager saying something to me and I said, Basically, I, I put it down to the language that we use sometimes. It's just simple language. So what was quite common at the start, David, was schools would ring me and, and offload and tell me their concerns and say they rang social care and they hadn't taken the referral on. I would then talk further with the school and get to the bottom and the detail of the case. And then I transform it into a language which the social worker then would understand. Example being, you know, the child's beyond parental control. Yeah. Or we're mm -hmm. concerned about the welfare of this child based on the mum's well-being. Do you understand? So that, that was quite straightforward for me. And then they were get the referrals that were then going into social care via myself. Not all of them, but the ones that they were struggling with. And likewise, social workers would call me to communicate with schools because they found that they, were, they weren't understanding the request or, you know, they weren't forthcoming with information. And it was all about trust. And it was all about kind of being in control of um, the information you're sharing. It was quite an interesting. Sounds of, like, yeah, um, it sounds like you were a translation and support service. Yeah, it was interesting. But the, I think it was schools were kind of delicate about, um, they weren't very confident back then in kind of sharing all of the grey information. And, and I'm proud to say that we've now got Keeping Children Safe in Education 2016, which is in the process of being amended for September 18. Yeah. The consultation's out now and it closes in 22nd of this month but um I, I remember you know we now know in education in schools that they are more confident when we kind of talk about the low level the lower level concerns you know the kind of i call it drip the drips you know the kind of slow slow feeding mm. ones where it's neglect emotional abuse you know things are going on there's more little indicators but they all add up to a massive massive concern um and, and they're much better now identifying that and and, and referring in and, and, and I think that's what I used to kind of um, go to back then was the emotional neglect ones were the harder ones that schools were yeah. very frustrated. And Understood. there were a lot of them. Yeah, they were emotionally involved as well. So well, they would emotionally get upset about it too, which I used to take out as well. Well, I think that's fair enough. I mean, let me ask you a few things that, I mean, that, 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 that might sort of resonate with you. Um, from my point of view, um, schools often see children more waking hours than their parents do. And therefore, in terms of actual recognition of any changes, any kind of worries or any behavioural alteration, whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're there on the front line. And not just the teaching staff, obviously, but the whole school. You know, you're talking the janitorial staff, the catering mm -hmm. staff, everybody. And you know as well as I do that when you go to safeguard the training in schools, you, you've got to include the whole school because children, children aren't entirely predictable about who they would disclose something to or who they could who, who they could be noticed by absolutely so given that as a sort of a fact with also the new legislation or the way that schools are now they're kind of less under the control of let's say local authorities or, or others it's only really the school commissioners if that or, and the governing bodies 
you feel that that separation has been a healthy thing for safeguarding or is it a, more of a challenge? Um, I, since the, the, the mats, the multi-academy trusts have crept in. And I think the first time I knew of those was kind of um, 2008, 2009, when they were creeping in. Um, and then I saw the services in, in, in like the LEA then, the local education authority, was shrinking. And then it almost went back into um, local authority. Um, and then that was shrinking further to lots of schools converting to academies. And obviously, like you're saying, you know, schools taking on their own responsibilities around safeguarding. Um, obviously, we've got the LSEBs, which we know that they have to adhere that's, to that's, around that's policies. For people, that's the Safeguarding Children Board. Sorry, Safe, safe good, sorry. Local Safeguarding Children's Board that kind of set the procedures and the protocols locally in every separate local authority. So they've always known that they have to go via that. Hence, um, that's part of the local authority they have to work with. But um, I, I have seen across the country, David, that it's very kind of um, it varies from very weak to very positive. I, I was in a setting just recently, um, start of this year, actually, where I was surprised. I've had, you know, somebody I've had a few very shocking stories, actually. But one of them was the, so at the moment in, in education, they have to have annual child protection training. And um, a, really? a headmaster, yes, I annual. it was th three years. No, no, it's annual. Keeping Children Safe says annual child protection training. So that changed in mm. September 2016. And um, a colleague, mm. uh, you know, headmaster in a school from a, a very good bar, should I say, was, was said to me that he was told a fortnight ago, um, and this is actually the third week in Jan, that um, by the local authority, by the LSCB, actually, the local Safeguard Children's Board, that they only need three annual, you know, the training every three years. So, and, and you know, I've had heard some, so I, I, I have seen more so than the not um, very kind of inconsistent, but out of date kind of um, safeguarding well, advice let's given hold to that. education. Let's hold that thought just for a second, because I'm interested in this, because I, I think maybe where the, the confusion arises is I would be one of the ones that would say that every three years is what they're doing. But, but no, in, in, hang on, hang on. But in the intervening time, they're doing e-learning and, and, and they're calling that adequate. Now, that's where I fall out. I think it should okay. be human-based learning every year. It's not, it's not e-learning. So, again, inspectors. So um, one of my roles, I work with uh, an inspectorate body and work with inspectors. And I've got kind of access to one of their checklists. And um, on there, they are very particular about it has to be face-to-face -face training. So some, I'm not going to mention names, but some schools buy into, there is a national kind of, um, there's quite a few national um, organisations that sell child protection training um, licences online. Um, but the inspectors query that because they want it to be preferably delivered by the designated safeguarding lead. Um, and, and the the, the designated safeguarding lead, we call the DSL, and in that document called Keeping Children Safe in Education, it's very clear that every education establishment has to have a DSL and a DSL deputy, okay, hmm. has to have them. And they are the person responsible for child protection in that school, meaning updating the policy annually, which they have to do annually. Also, raising the profile of child protection, doing a, a mandatory child protection training for new staff on induction, but also 
overseeing safer recruitment too. And part of that is delivering child protection training. So, you know, most schools I know, I would say at least 85 to 90 percent of colleagues I know in education, the DSL would provide that child protection training at the inset days. So normally, it, so years ago, I, I knew of schools doing it about for half an hour. But now we expect at least two and a half to three hour on child protection in the September inset. And then also maybe an hour or so reminders for the January and Easter insets. So they're, they're very quite, you know, they're quite um, intense as far as child protection being and massive. They've learned a lot from serious case reviews. And in one of my roles, I worked with the school improvement team, David, um, where we did behaviour and safety reviews. And, and in that role, I also used to do Ofsted complaints on behalf of the local authority. And we'd go in and we were quite vigorous in, in child protection. And, and anyone in, in education now will tell you that safeguarding is, is, a, is the, a top of the agenda for, okay. you know, inspection. Let me ask you this then, because, yeah. I mean, you, you will know this, but just for the sake of people listening, mm -hmm. the new children's social work act that's come into place and the, the, the review of local safeguarding children boards, in fact, the dissolution of local safeguarding children boards into a mm -hmm. morphing into yet another kind of um, shape, um, says that there has to be three primary um, partners, uh, health, police and local authority. Uh, the obvious missing, so the, the seat but nobody sitting on it at the table, essentially in the primary sense at core people is education and yet the new working together which you know but people might not is essentially the kind of um, bible for multi-agency kind of um, safeguarding um, says that uh, there should be a strong relationship with schools and with regional school commissioners and that arrangements must contain explicit reference how partners plan to involve schools and academies in their work. Now if it's that important, and what you've just been saying and what I've understood for years has been the, the vital importance of um, schools in safeguarding, it sounds like they're being kind of downgraded. Would you agree? I totally agree. So um, keeping children safe. So, so keeping children safe was born out of working together. OK, so working together was first. And that set the kind of standards for everybody in any organisation that works with children in relation to the expectations of a safeguarding lead, a policy and training as, and betting. Keeping children safe is specifically for colleges, maintained schools and um, and also sco general schools. OK, and, and it's, it's all about safeguarding. So when it first came out, um, it was in 2015, they amended it at least four times and then they changed it a lot in September 2016. And with those big changes came the annual child protection training um, and also these requirements. So going back to your question, um, the fact that in schools there's, they've really heightened and strengthened child protection because we know that they are the only people that see children five days a week, years, 12 years at least at a time, based on your whole school career. Their best place to see, and you know, social workers, we were given cases, we didn't know the families, we were strangers, we built up trust. You know, you might see a child at the max, what, four, five times in, in an assessment, depending on the nature of the, of, of, the, of the case, and then we close cases and they go back to school. So 
I've always, it saddened me to see that they have forgotten our colleagues in education because one of the things that I do in my kind of independent role, I really empower the safeguarding leads to be, to be confident and, and also, you know, be responsible for their position as a safeguarding lead okay. and challenge. Well, now, you, you, where you work, obviously, you're advising them what you've just told me and where I work, I know that schools are given high priority in terms of partnership, mm-hmm. you know, with local authority and others. But obviously, you know, it's curate's egg, you know, it's patchy all over the country. Mm, definitely. Um, I think the, the Department for Education, I'm not sure. I mean, with, with the safeguarding boards and their replacements and the, the advice that's going out there, I mean, those of us who chair boards um, feel that of the about 150 boards across sort of England and Wales, you could get 150 models if you're not careful. And, or none. I mean, don't forget that they could be scrapped. Well, yeah, but, but they're, mean, they're having multi-agency multi agency Yeah, multi-local arrangements. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been there before. Cause I, I kind of qualified a little bit before you. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I remember Area Child Protection Committees. Yeah, and, ACPCs, yeah. Yeah, and... and Irony is that we're almost going back to that kind of presentation, um, you know, with ACPCs. Although the agenda is uh, is twice as long, and the, and the and the actual work that are now involved with safeguarding is twice as much, because so many new areas of concern have arisen. You know, the whole issue of uh, child sexual exploitation, modern yeah. day slavery, female mm-hmm. genital mutilation, children the, missing education, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the prevent agenda mm-hmm. about radicalization, and so on. Uh, I mean, all of that's hit the table as well as the 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 main issues that always have been there, neglect and and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, given a higher agenda, given a higher work rate, given more responsibility, giving fewer funding, it is even more stretched in my view these days enable you know to enable us to do the work those of us who are passionate about keeping children safe so where do you think it's going it's going to be i think like you you're absolutely right david it's going to go back i mean where we've come a long way in the last 10 years i mean we've had serious case reviews i know that but i i in the in the field of being in education that i've been in for the last say you know since 17 years i i i have seen um, a, a gradual movement of us of education being a bit more integrated into children's social care um, and it's very sad to see that I think this kind of recent changes within the kind of government changes of whether it's guidance or like you said this new bill that's coming in the act um, for me it, we are going backwards it's going to kind of remove or make schools a bit more remote as far as their involvement in child protection it might be a bit of a tick box but Keeping children safe will, it's interesting, actually, because that kind of drives them. But I don't think this new bill, sorry, the Children's Social Act, um, complements the Keeping Children Safe guidance. That makes sense, because where that gives them a lot of ammunition to kind of um, be confident and work with child protection safeguarding as part of that multi-agency network, um, as you can see, they're not down as one of those people who are one of the key partners, even though that they are one of the most important because of the nature of their contact with children. Okay, well, look, given what you've just said and the requirements, and you used the key word there, the Keeping Children Safe guidance, mm-hmm. what statutory requirements are there if they don't comply? Well, obviously, we know that, you know, mandatory reporting, we're not there yet. 
So mm. I'll, I'll park that one there. No, 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 not yet. Not <laughs> um, um, but but schools are good with. I know of the schools, a few schools where people have failed to um, pass on information regarding child protection, and therefore that person would have breached the child protection policy under the information sharing guidance of 2015. So. Um, Internally, I know schools are doing their own things, but they do take it very seriously, most of the ones that I know or have involvement with. Um, but generally, I, I think, you know, it's one where I think, um, you know, legally, they've got the Children's Act 1989, the welfare of the child being paramount. Um, the schools are very aware about the whole thing about liaising with multi-agency safeguarding hubs and, you know, reporting child abuse under the Act as far as you know, sharing information, the welfare of the child, um, multi-agency working. So that will, I, I, I honestly believe personally that that will continue. I, I really don't think, because now they've almost been um, woken as far as the converted in, in understanding child protection better because of this last few years with the Keeping Children Safe guidance. I doubt if they're going to go back, you know, they're going to step down from that because they really have stepped up as far as, understanding the games that families play, really good at resources at getting children to disclose. You know, this annual training is normally updated, but also there is something in Keeping Children Safe, David, where the safeguarding lead has to also update staff regularly anyway via email, bulletin or newsletter. So not only do they get annual training, they then have to get, you know, every few weeks child protection updates, information about other things, whether it's sexting or... Um, like you mentioned, prevent or FGM, or whether it's about a latest case on the, you know, the press. So they are, you know, safeguarding. They all have sort of safeguarding pages on their websites. They have safeguarding boards in their in their staff rooms. They have pictures of the safeguarding lead. They have posters about whistleblowing. So they've really stepped into this world of, you know, it could happen here approach. And they have the support and, of the local South, uh, safeguarding children board uh, and its successors. I mean, you know, because they're an integral part of that with the... Yeah, yeah. Every, every board has its education subcommittee, usually, usually uh, chaired by a, um, a prominent head teacher or whatever, you know. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there, there, is, there is sort of, if you like, a bank of support around. It's just a question of making sure people realise that there is there are degrees of excellence that they can tap into. Yeah, and also create their own. So it's interesting, the last few years, I've seen a lot of colleagues in schools going back to the old clusters, you know, schools working in clusters again. Because of the deficit and, and, and also the, the money issues, they're, they're buying in services and sharing it between them. You know, sure. whether it's a counsellor, whether it's um, an art therapist or play therapist or music therapist or, you know, parenting work. They're doing that. So they are kind of working together in partnership as, with each other. What message would you give to young social workers or well, newly qualified social workers? They needn't be young, but newly, newly qualified social workers coming through now that might be looking at something within the kind of um, partnership with education field, you know, to work in? Would, would you give them advice that this is a good place to work? I, it's, for a newly qualified person, it's quite isolating. So I would encourage a newly qualified person to go down that route of getting that child protection experience first within the statutory kind of, um, you know, organisations first, because you need to kind of understand the processes and systems internally. And then I think, because when you are working with child protection education, it's very isolating. So when I did my first role in the 90s, 
the first thing I did feel very remote as far as um, people not understanding my 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 standards of kind of you know example what the first thing that we do in social work is non-discriminatory practice you know everything we do is about race culture religion children's feelings wishes and feelings into account other colleagues didn't really get that as far as we did you know mm. seeing the child as an individual so when I had my supervision and was my team meetings I felt like part of that network again but on a day-to-day basis it was very isolating um, I actually was invited to write a chapter in a book, actually, um, Becoming a Social Worker, about that role in the school, if anyone's interested in that, with my old maiden name, Howell, Anne-Marie Howell. So there was a whole chapter about my experience working yeah. in the school. Don't worry. We're, we're going to put your contact that. details on the podcast, don't yeah, we? on but, the text side but, of it. Yeah, but um, it, it's, so it's very isolating. Um, and it's there are lots of I have got actually a few social workers that I actually supervise that are in schools is current what I currently do. And we have supervision. And, you know, one of them isn't a safeguarding lead, but she's clearly in the school. It's um, demanding school with lots of kind of, you know, um, disaffected children, a lot of child protection. So she works and does early help in that school. She kind of does group work. She works with families. She attends social care meetings and she loves it, actually, because she's quite um, she's in her late 20s and she can relate to the young people as well. It's like a big sister kind of person. And she understands the dilemmas they're facing in relation to young people. And it's working quite well. So it depends on the individual, but it is very isolating. I mean, you know, you have to kind of go out your way to keep up to date with child protection and social work so I do that myself you know okay. I'm an independent one but I know I've got um, I belong to various national bodies where you know professional bodies where I get my social work kind of practice from and my updates well look, but, just just before I mean we're down to the last couple of questions here and I want to make sure that I get a chance to kind of give you a, a chance to give your messages out if you like at the mm-hmm. end about what you think should be could be would you know etc but just before there is something that I have always been involved with through all my working life and where it crosses into the education world would be um, special educational needs mm-hmm. um, and th- those schools that cater for uh, challenging young people or young people that have got special educational needs. Now we know that issues to do with um, safeguarding children with disabilities for example uh, the proportion within the community has hardly changed of those who are abused um, since about the 50s, the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it, it has always seemed to me fairly scandalous that, you know, the, the, the old figure of sort of three times as many children with disabilities mm. are abused as children without disabilities, proportionate to their numbers in the population. Um, but that's never changing. And and you, you see much movement within schools and other educational establishments catering for special educational needs uh, in this, because it doesn't seem to be changing as far as I, I can see. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that, because I, um, I I see that you get a certain type of person who works in SEN, SEN in special education kind of schools. So you've got their severe schools where you've got nonverbal children, severely disabled and then, you know, combined with kind of vis- invisible disabilities. And I've, got, I've done, I've, like you, I've, you know, from the start of my career, I've always had, you know, working in partnership with various schools. And I've got a few that I do quite regularly because of my passion and, like you, understanding in helping them to raise that profile. And again, it goes back to the ones where the majority of them understand the voice of the child, understand the communication difficulties, and understand sometimes 
the dilemmas that go into the parent and how sometimes it can be stressful, the thin line between good enough parenting, you know, the, thing, the whole thing about being dependent on carers and all the other things. So they are more alert and, 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 and you know, but then also empathise with the challenges that come with that. Mm. Um, and, and, and they're much more engaging and they've got more resources. They work in partnership with health. Um, and they're very strict. For example, a lot of the ones I know have banned mobile phones from their schools because obviously, you know, most of these children have to be relied on to be changed around intimate care. And obviously by banning the phones, you're, you're just encouraging people to take advantage of people like that. Do you understand? But in saying that, though, David, to my surprise, two years ago, I, I was I, I was um, invited to go to a school. A colleague of mine has just taken the new headship and invited me to the new school. And it was shocking. So, you know, you're talking about not that long ago as an old school kind of real um, you know, children being tied down. It was very sad, very sad. It, was, it had been dealt with appropriately after we found out, but there were some sole practices yeah. going on where children weren't being, like there was, there was a padded, a room with a padding in it where children were locked in to, when they were, you know, lashing out. So I hope there's not a lot of those still, but majority of SEN schools that I do know are very kind of passionate and have and go the extra mile to ensure that yeah. they keep these children safe and, and pick up all the early signs, you know, they're very good at questioning. But sometimes, again, like, in, in, you know, as you know, social workers, we have supervision. We, we, we check ourselves as far as our emotional involvement and, and good enough what's happening in cases. And I think sometimes in those settings, it does blur in relation yeah. to understanding the challenges from a family's point of view to, you know, is this child being neglected or yeah. scapegoated? Do you know what I mean? I do. They, well, we're, not, we're never yeah. going to eradicate abuse no. any, anywhere. Yeah. And schools are no exception. I just think mm. that our best bet is to hope that we are actually reducing uh, significantly the opportunities for abuse. Because yeah, there will always be people that want to hurt children. Mm -hmm. the, lastly, really, Anne-Marie, I'm, um, I'm very keen that the way the world is going, it, you know, like um, the world's turning digital mm -hmm. uh, and the world is turning into much more of a, the way that people get their information is, is so much more kind of, a, is some form of media or another. It's, it's, it's very, the traditional ways of actually sharing information seem to be reducing and everything seems to be online these days. And that's why I was having a little bit of a dig about e-learning earlier on, although I know there are some significantly good e-learning that goes on it's just but it's all it's not entirely good so where do you think the future lies in terms of social work and safeguarding when it comes to the digital world i mean you're getting all sorts of um ways now of intervening with uh, with with social work um service users now whether it's going to be what we're doing, we're here, here, we're, we're talking remotely and recording this. There could be social workers doing visits online instead of in person. There could be um, seminars going on or webinars going on to do with instead of face-to-face -face training. There's, there's all sorts of other stuff happening and people are getting most of their information from websites or from apps and so forth. Do, do you see that burgeoning in terms of actually getting really quite overwhelming and the whole um, process of social work becoming much more digital rather than personal. Yeah, I, I, I can see it going that way. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it. So the only time, because I do some, I do work with international schools and there are times when we Skype because obviously 
you're in a remote part of the world and you know i i can understand how that that can work because obviously it's conversations yeah. and having a meeting online so i appreciate that but then eventually you, you may meet if it's an ongoing issue um is in some way um but generally um I can see how I know quite a few local authorities have tablets now, as in uh, um, like um, computer tablets where they will take them to home visits and complete forms at home to get people to sign online. And, and I understand that it's happening now and it works in the favour of the social worker, meaning when they go back to the office, the, the notes are already done. Um, but there's lots of in issues there around data protection, you know, that's been lost, blah, blah, blah. It's not very personal anyway when you're kind of talking to a screen rather than actually doing a home visit and assessing, observing and interactions. I think so that's I'm, more, I'm more important, isn't it? Though? Sorry to interrupt you, but just, just to say, more, more important now, but for us in the Western industrialised countries, because when you talked about international schools there, I mean, for me, social work in Western industrialised countries is, is more on a one-to-one -one level or a one-to-a-family level, whereas in the... Uh, other parts of the world, uh, it's all about social work. It's all about communities. And yeah, it's, it's very different. You're absolutely right. So, you know, what I like to see, as in professionally, is the personal touch as far as that individual on the individual needs being met, you know, focusing in for that period of time on that family, on their lived experience of the child. Everything has to be alert. And, and it goes back to... I remember a powerful exercise that I did many years ago and I, you know, as a student social worker um, of observing a child, you know, who's young, couldn't talk, baby. And, and the power in, in, in like, even an hour's observation of just watching and seeing interactions and, and dynamics and systems in families is, is amazing. You get so much from that as far as intelligence about what's happening around this child, you know, the emotional warmth, the secure network and all those things. And that will be missed, I think. So I, I, I am old school. I do believe in good old fashioned go out, dedicate that time or that hour to that family to intervene, to be available emotionally, to pick up on all the things that you have to. And then again, making time after to complete your notes. But um, learn. I, I don't I don't agree with e-learning. Don't get me wrong. I think when I worked for local authority, I did the data protection online and I did my kind of those things I can understand online because that's very much about processes. But when it comes to real child protection, safeguarding issues, mm. I, I don't I don't agree with um, you can't provoke people. You can't provoke people's. You can't you know, answer the nuanced questions. Yeah, you can't. It's very hypothetical as far. Well, there's one more thing, you know, rather yeah. than actually. One yeah. more thing, Anne. You know, just, just I've got to pick up before I forget with what you just said. There, yeah. I really do well, agree with it. And uh, somebody has been on this program a couple of times, uh, Professor Harry Ferguson, who's mm -hmm. written a couple of books on child protection, and he's very, very sort of well thought of in, in, in the field. He spent uh, a year with um, a child protection teams embedded in, in a local authority in a big city, and he followed social workers out. And one, one of the things he noticed was the, the real reduction in the fact that social workers who go out to, to visit children don't take with them any more toys or pencils or pens or col oh. colouring books or anything to engage children. Mm. And it's really kind of the whole idea of kind of bureaucracy and, you know, kind of formulaic visiting times. It's not, I'm, I'm, he wasn't critical of a lot of the good work that went on, but what he was saying is that, yeah. that we've lost something. It. We've lost mm. something here in terms of, 
so many social workers who work with children want to come into the profession to do face-to-face -face work. I know. And, and that's really been suffering, hasn't it? Yeah, like going back to what you said, you know, um, when I first qualified, I used to do direct work with children, you know, felt tips, teddy bears, clay, sand, you name it. We had, you know, they'd come into the office and we had a playroom or I'd do home visits with my little bucket where I'd have my, in the back of my car in my boot, I had my little um, plastic containers knowing that I was visiting certain children. You know, I used to, we had um, stationery covered with stuff in, but I actually bought my own. And I still have actually. So even in the job I do now as a sort of safeguarding consultant, I have um, toys. So the other day I bought, um, you know, ones about feelings, you know, angry, happy, sad, confused. And I really do encourage colleagues to, when they're trying to work with young people, to use, you know, there's a worry monster that I've got as well, that you're encouraging young people to communicate and offload their worries, which oh, triggers, yeah. obviously, children telling you about what they're, how they're feeling, which could be, be abused. So it's really important that you are approachable, like you said, and, and the whole thing about being child-centred, but child-friendly. You know, what do children like? They like little squidgy kind of toys, things that make them laugh, not pieces of paper and pens. No. I, I understand we have to do that part, but we have to also be approachable and build that rapport with that young person. Totally that agree. That they can, you know, yeah. that they, you know, even if, you know, putty or um, what do you call it, um, spinners but i do yeah. don't get me wrong david health and safety has gone so mad now that i can imagine everything <laughs> well, let's not, i don't want to go there. i don't want to i don't want to go there but just just before i get to your last couple of words okay i i, I do remember you just made me think of something there I, I remember there was quite a fashion at some point there for working with what what, what were called anatomically correct dolls yes uh but i always remembered that there's the sheer kind of amusement amongst the social workers that I was working with when they actually came out and started working with them. Because the anatomically correct dolls that we were sort of working with children with had no ears. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, in a sense, that was some of the things that the children first picked up on, you know, and, and it was just, yeah, just yeah. an incredible oversight. Anyway, Luke, I want to ask you just to say one sentence because we're very, very close to the end of the programme. One or two sentences okay, okay. about why you think that social work is still a good profession for people now considering their future? Because we make a difference to lots of people's lives. You know, we, we, we believe we don't like injustice. Um, we believe in empowering people. We appreciate that people may be vulnerable at any time in their life, but they can get over that and move on with the right support and help. And, you know, I was I like to say this, it's um, it's OK not to be OK. You know, yeah. no one's perfect. We're not robots. You know, whether you're a parent or not a parent, I think it's all about working with people to let them understand that no one's judging them. We accept who you are and how you are, but we can work with you and support you through it. So I've always loved that part of, of social work. It, you know, it's, it's very much about empowering people and being non-discriminatory too. Hence, we're quite inclusive. Thank you. Um, yeah. No, no, that's all right. I just have to, I'm, sadly, I could go on talking all night to you, but I've got to yeah, bring the programme to a close. But all right, look, that's fine. Anne-Marie Christian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. No problems. Thank you. Thank and, you very much, uh, David. Your, your contact details I'll put in the text at the podcast. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much.